Welcome to One Tribe Church Online. We're in part two of a series of four talks on the subject of heaven. With all that's going on around us, most of us have had more time and more reason to think about life's biggest questions. And of course, one of life's biggest questions relates to what happens when we die. Wherever you are on your spiritual journey, whether you would say you believe in and follow Jesus or not, that is an important question. And so we've put together this series of talks to help you to live prepared to die and to die prepared to live. Last week, we looked briefly at the likelihood, even the inevitability of death for each of us. And we talked about what happens immediately after we die. This week, we want to talk about life, death, and justice. Talking about justice for a few moments. A lady called Cara Walton successfully sued the owner of a nightclub when she fell down from the bathroom window to the floor and knocked out her two front teeth. This occurred while Miss Walton was trying to sneak through the window in the ladies' room to avoid paying the $3.50 cover charge. She was awarded $12,000 and dental expenses. Or the story of 19-year-old Carl Truman, who won $74,000 and medical expenses when his neighbor ran over his hand with a Honda Accord. Mr. Truman apparently didn't notice there was someone at the wheel of the car when he was trying to steal his neighbor's hubcaps. Or lastly, Terence Dixon. He was leaving a house he had just finished robbing by way of the garage. He was not able to get the garage door to go up since the automatic door opener was malfunctioning. He couldn't re-enter the house because the door connecting the house and garage had locked when he put, pulled it shut. The family was on vacation and Mr. Dixon found himself locked in the garage for eight days. He subsisted on a case of Pepsi that he found and a large bag of dry dog food. He sued the homeowner's insurance, claiming the situation caused him undue mental anguish. The jury agreed to the tune of $500,000. Supreme Court Justice Horace Gray once informed a man who had appeared before him in a lower court and had escaped conviction on a technicality. He said, I know that you are guilty and you know it. And I wish you to remember that one day you will stand before a better and wiser judge and that there you will be dealt with according to justice and not according to law. Here's why this is so important. A lot of us have experienced injustice in our families, in our workplaces, and even in the church. This morning's story addresses that in a powerful way. I'll pray for us, and then we'll get into it. Jesus, as we get into your word, would you honor your word? Would you speak to us by the power of your spirit? And would you build our lives to a point where we are able, where we are able to say that we can live prepared to die and die prepared to live. 
Luke 19, verse 12 to 27. He said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. Jesus was near Jerusalem at this time, and the image he uses here would have been familiar to the people listening. In 40 BC, a king in that place and time called Herod the Great had received his kingdom that way. He was in Israel, but he went to Rome to have his kingship acknowledged by Rome. When Herod died in his will, he divided his realm between three of his sons. One of his sons, Archelaus, had been left Judea with the title king, but he also had to go to Rome in 4 BC to receive his kingdom, meaning to receive the right to rule Jerusalem and Judea. We read on. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 miners. That's one miner each. A miner was worth about 100 days wages. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. These servants didn't earn this money. What's true of this money is true of so much in our lives. Everything and anything we have is a gift from God that we don't deserve. That goes for our finances, our time, our gifts and talents, our relationships and influence, our health. All of these are gifts that God has entrusted to you and me and said, put this to work until I come back. But check this out. Even though this king is so good, so kind, so gracious and so generous, but his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. <laughs> this is a true story. Remember Herod's son, Archelaus? That's what happened to him. He traveled to Jerusalem and the people of that time of Jerusalem sent a delegation of 50 people after him to say to Rome, please don't make this guy our king. But he was made king and he came back. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. We learn a lot about Jesus from the king in the story. We'll see in a few verses that this story isn't a perfect picture of Jesus, but we do learn a lot about him. Jesus is the king of noble birth. He is God's son, born miraculously of a virgin and a descendant of David, Israel's greatest king up until that point. At this point in our story, he is about to die for our sins in Jerusalem and then go back to God his Father to be appointed King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Until he comes back, he has entrusted you and I with grace gifts that he expects us to put to work until he comes back. As the story tells us, there are people who do not want Jesus to be king. They resist his kingship in their lives as individuals and in society more, wide, more widely. That doesn't stop Jesus from being crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords and keeping his promise to come back. When Jesus comes back, what happens? Do we all go to heaven? According to this story and the wider teaching of Jesus, when Jesus comes back, he's going to call each one of us to give an account 
of what we've been doing while he's been gone. And our first major point for this morning is that we will stand before the judge. Verse 15, he was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. This is described in more detail in a letter written by one of Jesus' followers called Paul to a church in a city called Corinth. Paul wrote that, 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. We're going to get back into our story in a few moments, I promise. But first, I want us to look very closely at that verse, because pretty much every word in that sentence is loaded. Let's look at it in five parts briefly. First, where? Paul says there is a judgment seat. The word judgment seat translates the Greek word bema. In those days, the public square or marketplace in the center of a city would have a raised platform that you could mount by steps, and at the top of the steps would sometimes be a seat where city officials would address, address crowds or make pronouncements and judgments. Corinth had a bema, and actually elsewhere in the Bible, we read that Paul once stood before the judgment seat of Gallio in Corinth, just like Jesus stood before the judgment seat of Pontius Pilate. The time is coming, however, when Paul and everyone, Pilate and Gallio included, must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Secondly, who? We must all appear. This judgment is for unbelievers and believers. We will all give an account. Now, Paul wrote elsewhere that Romans 8.1, therefore there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But no condemnation doesn't mean no accountability. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Sometimes we can think we can get a free pass on judgment day because we're believers. But being a believer doesn't give us a free pass. In fact, when Paul wrote this letter to the church in Corinth, he was writing it to believers in the church. It was a Christ follower, Paul, writing to other Christ followers in Corinth, saying we must all appear to give an account. This will not be an optional invitation. This summons cannot be rejected or avoided or postponed. His judgment will affect all men, all nations, the living and the dead, the good and the bad, believers and unbelievers, and Jesus himself will be its central presiding figure. Thirdly, what will happen? We will all appear. The Greek word there, phanero, that is translated appear, means to be made manifest. It doesn't just mean that we'll all turn up or we must all be present. Phanero carries the sense of to be laid bare for all the world to see who we really are. 
These themes run all throughout Scripture. For example, in Luke 12, Jesus says, There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. And what you have whispered in the air in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. Someone said you can fool some of the people all of the time and all of the people some of the time, but you cannot fool all of the people all of the time. And you cannot fool God. Who we really are and what we've really done and why we've really done it will be the basis of Christ's judgment. And fourthly, we will receive what is due. And as we read on in our story, we learn a little bit more about what that will look like. Verse 15. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your miner has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, this master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. We will all stand before the judge and faithful servants will be rewarded. What is happening here is simply beautiful. The servants say to their master, Sir, your miner has earned more. Not look at what I did, but acknowledging that what they got came from their master as a good and generous gift of grace. And so he should get all of the glory. The servants give back to their master the fruit of what he first gave them. And then, just like Paul said, they receive what is due to them for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. We see in the story a king who loves to reward his servants. All over the Bible, we see a God who loves to reward us for doing what he empowered us to do by his grace. From the first book of the Bible where God said to Abraham, after this the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, do not be afraid, Abraham, I am your shield, your very great reward. To the last book of the Bible where Jesus says, behold, I am coming soon, my reward is with me and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. We see a God who loves to reward and who looks forward to rewarding Christ followers for every act of faithfulness. It's critical that we grasp this distinction. Though our reconciliation to God has been secured, our rewards, or loss thereof, will be determined by the extent to which we've pursued godliness in response to his call. Not that God is obligated to reward us. This too is an act of sheer grace. So said C.J. Mahaney. Jesus makes no secret of the fact that he looks forward to rewarding us. And in this story and throughout scripture, we get hints and glimpses of what those rewards will be. Rest. One aspect of Christ's rich reward is rest. We'll see in a couple of weeks how that doesn't mean there will be nothing to do in heaven. Trust me, 
there will be plenty to do. But for the mother of young children who know sleepless nights, for the office worker who can't afford to retire, there will be rest. Also, Christ's well done. In this story, we hear Christ's well done. He says, well done, my good servant. Have you ever felt unappreciated for what you do? Have you ever felt misunderstood? Have you ever done a secret and sacrificial act of service that no one sees? Michael Eaton says, the well done that Jesus will say to us will resound throughout the universe. Everyone will know about it. Our critics will know about it. Our friends will know about it. The angels will know about it. For being trustworthy in a relatively small matter, these servants get charge of cities. How cool is that? This speaks of promotion and the opportunity to do even more cool stuff for God in eternity. And one last hint we get in scripture is the picture of a crown. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And of course, Paul says, now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have longed for his appearing. If you're a faithful servant of Jesus, be encouraged that everything we do for him is worth it. If you've been hurt or harmed by other people, the knowledge that a judgment day is coming allows us to leave judgment to Jesus. He says, vengeance is mine. Keep on pressing onwards and upwards to get the prize. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your miner. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. Wrapping money in a piece of cloth was considered one of the most irresponsible ways to take care of money entrusted to you. In that place and in that time, it suggested that the servant was stupid or treasonous or most likely both. Unfaithful servants will suffer loss. We will all stand before the judge. Faithful servants will be rewarded and unfaithful servants will suffer loss. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? 
Why then didn't you put the money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his minor away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minors. Sir, they said, he already has 10. He replied, I tell you the truth, that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. The Tyndale Bible commentary is so helpful at this point. It, is, it says that Jesus isn't saying that the rich will get richer and that the poor will get poorer. It says that those who have an abundance as a result of their faith, faithfulness, as evidence of faithfulness, will get more. And the man whose lack shows lack of faithfulness, that'll be taken away. The third servant made no use of his opportunities, and so he will lose what little he has. 1 Corinthians 3 says, if any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Followers of Christ, you don't want that to be you. If you're a follower of Jesus and you see any areas of unfaithfulness in your life, say sorry to Jesus now and ask him for his help to do what pleases him. But to be faithful to this text, it's important that we talk about one last group of people that this parable speaks about. It teaches us that we will all stand before the judge, that faithful servants will be rewarded and unfaithful servants will suffer loss. And lastly, that enemies of Christ will be lost. Verse 27, but those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. T.W. Manson has possibly the best comment on this. He says we may be horrified by the fierceness of the conclusion, but beneath the grim imagery is an equally grim fact. The fact that the coming of Jesus to the world puts every man to the test and compels every man to make a decision. And the stakes of that decision are life and death. Friends, how you and I respond to Jesus is a matter of life and death. And he wants you to choose life. A man called Martin Luther said that he lives with two days on his calendar, today and that day. It's the day of reckoning. One other man said that the role of parenting and pastoring is to prepare family and church for judgment day. We're going through this series so that you will be ready for judgment day. If you are a servant of Jesus, we hope that you'll be found faithful. If you're an unfaithful servant in certain areas, and most of us have 
areas of unfaithfulness somewhere in our lives, this message is an opportunity to repent. And if you're an enemy of Jesus, today he's offering you terms of peace and welcoming you into relationship with him because he's good and he wants to give you life. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, I pray for every man, woman, and child who can hear the sound of my voice, that by your spirit you'd be at work in our hearts to help us to be better prepared for judgment day. I pray, Jesus, for those of us who, if we are honest, are enemies of you. I pray that you'd be at work in our hearts to cause us to accept your terms of peace and to know your welcome into heaven's family. God, I pray for those of us who have areas of unfaithfulness in our lives, that by your spirit you'd bring those to light and help us to repent, to change the way we think and to change the way that we act. And God, I pray for those of us who are serving faithfully in different areas, that we would today begin to know your affirmation, that we'd have a fresh anticipation for the reward you so eagerly want to give. And I pray that even today we'd begin to hear the echoes of what we will one day hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. And we pray all of this in your mighty name. And everyone said, Amen. <laughs>